Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Decatur City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Decatur City Church app where you can find access to all of our recent message content. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy the following presentation and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, so you have to choose today. Let's settle the greatest Christmas debate of all time. Real tree or fake tree? So here we go. By a show of hands, if you are real tree crowd, raise those hands. There you go. Look at, oh, such good people. I love it. All right, if you have sold out in Bah Humbug and you're <laughs> fake tree, raise your hands. Yeah, my, parent, my parents are down on the front row raising their hands. That's not my childhood. I don't know what has happened since I moved out. But uh, I got to be honest with you, though. Uh, how, real quick, all my real tree people, anybody like still go cut it down? Like anybody do that? A couple of people in the first service, there's a couple of people too. I'm impressed. Look at you guys. I would be team fake tree. I really would if it wasn't for my wife. She's all in on, um, on real tree. Don't tell her I said that. She's down in, in Wombaland. But um, we're real tree at our house. Takes all weekend. It usually ends in a fight while we're trying to pick out the tree. It's like a whole deal. But like, you know, we, we get through it. So uh, anyways, that's, uh, we've solved it. You don't have to worry about it. The majority of you are team real tree, which is, which is awesome. So uh, today we're going to wrap up this series that Andy kicked off a couple weeks ago called The Day After Christmas. And I don't know about you guys, but I have thoroughly enjoyed this series. Um, it has been encouraging to me. It's been helpful to me. It's kind of helped me get my mind in the right place to actually celebrate Christmas, like I think there's a ton of things we celebrate at Christmas, right? Like, and some of them are pretty easy to celebrate. It's easy to celebrate a little bit more time off of work than normal. You know, hopefully it's easy to celebrate some time with friends and and family. I know that can be challenging in some cases, but hopefully that's something you're celebrating this year. I think it's obviously easy to celebrate the seas, like, you know, carols and candy and cookies and all of those things come uh, easy to celebrate. Um, I even think at Christmas time, it's easy to celebrate some of like the the bigger, deeper themes, uh, you know, things like love and and kindness and, and mercy um, empathy, they all just seem to flow a little bit easier at Christmas time. There's so much wonder and, you know, magic in the air that all of that stuff just, it just seems easier than normal, even for the, you know, Scrooge in all of us. Um, but uh, this series, we've been diving into this idea that what we're really celebrating, and I, I think I lose sight of this sometimes, I think we probably all lose sight of this, is that what we're really celebrating at Christmas is the birth of a king. And not just any king, like we're celebrating the birth of the king, like the king of kings is, uh, it was born at Christmas and the one who is truly worthy to be celebrated. And I love the fact that we've taken this idea that we're celebrating the birth of a king and we've actually made it something really personal. Like we've been wrestling with this, this idea, this question that like, hey, are you not only celebrating the birth of a king, are you celebrating at Christmas that he is your king? And I love that we've made it personal because that is something that is so personal, right? Like Christmas reminds us that God left heaven and stepped down to earth and took on the form of a child to intimately get to know us uh, because he loves us so much and he wants to be close to us and he wants to care for us in that intimate way. And it really is something personal. And, And yet at the same time, it's something that I think a lot of us, you know, we wrestle with. Like it is personal, but we also kind of wrestle with it. And so if you're sitting here today and you're looking at Christmas or maybe you're watching online this morning and 
you're having the thought that like, yeah, I, I might be able to celebrate that a king was born, but I don't know that I can celebrate that he's my king. I don't, I don't know that I'm there yet. And if that's you, I just want you to know right off the bat, like, you are in the right place. You are surrounded by great people. You are surrounded by a room filled of people who have been wrestling with that same question. In fact, I know many of you would say at one time, you were like, hey, I felt very certain in that idea. But now in this season, I'm not as sure as I once was. And I feel like I'm wrestling with my faith. And so wherever you are with that question this Christmas, I just want you to know, like, you're surrounded by people who really do care for you. And it's okay. Like, we are so glad that you're here. And my hope is that maybe in something I say today, or maybe in something uh, Andy said over the last two weeks, or even that something Jared or Amber or somebody sang from this stage, that something would just kind of nudge you this Christmas to kind of look at that and to wrestle with that question. Like, hey, not only is Jesus king, but like, am I celebrating that he's my king? Because we, we want you to, to have the answers that you're looking for uh, to that. And I love also that we've taken this series and we've said, not only is Jesus this king that's worth celebrating, but like he's bigger than just a king that came to forgive. Like that, I think that's important. We've talked about this idea that he is a king that came to forgive, but he's also a king that wants to be followed. And that's really what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna kind of dive back in today to the story that we looked at over the last couple of weeks. And we're gonna look at this idea of what does it really look like to follow Jesus as king? And so I wanna jump back into the New Testament account of Matthew, Matthew chapter two. If you are, uh, if you have your Bible, you're more than welcome to open it up. Uh, If you open right to the middle, it'll pretty much fall to Matthew. If you don't have your Bible or you don't have a device to look it up on, we're gonna put most of the scriptures on the screen so you can kind of follow along with us. But Matthew was an eye witness account to the life of Jesus. He was one of his 12 disciples. And we've looked at this story over the last couple of weeks. And I just want us to kind of dive right back into it and see what we can, you know, kind of figure out um, what's left in this story. So here we go. Matthew starts off verse one, chapter two. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. He was born during the reign of another king. He was born during the reign of King Herod. Well, about that time, some wise men from the Eastern lands, they arrived in Jerusalem And they were asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Now we've talked about this a little bit, but contrary to that song that we all know, the, you know, the, the three kings, like this is probably not what is actually happening here. These wise men were not kings. There probably wasn't even three of them. We get the idea that there was three because there's three gifts later in the story. But uh, we don't know a whole lot about these people. They were known as wise men. Maybe your translation says magi. They're, they're kind of interchangeable. Uh, what we do know is that these individuals came from the ruling class of Persia, which is modern day Iran, okay? And the kings of Persia would have magi or wise men who would serve as their counsel. They were kind of their their crew, their advisors, if you will. If you were to take it and put it in modern day terms, this would be like the people that the president of the United States has on speed dial. Like it would be the people that you and I don't really like to think about, the people that are influencers, they're movers and shakers, like the Warren Buffetts of the world or the economists of the world or the evangelists of the world that the president always calls and says, hey, I I need your insight. That's who these people are. And in their day, it was sociologists or doctors or philosophers or religious experts. It were were dream interpreters. It was astrologists. Um, You you might be familiar with the Old Testament story of, of Daniel, 
Uh, Daniel served under uh, another king, and he, you know, you might know the story Daniel in the lion's den or Daniel in the, the fiery furnace. Well, you remember Daniel was a dream interpreter. The king would call him when he needed to understand a dream. There's a chance that Daniel was, was like a, a magi, not one of these, but at an earlier date and time. So that kind of gets your mind around who we're talking about. Well, these people, these wise men, they saw this astrological sign in the sky, which was a really big deal to their culture. Much like you might hear somebody now talk about signs in the sky or the stars or trying to interpret what's going on. They see this star, and to them, they knew enough about the Old Testament prophecies. They knew enough that a, a king was supposed to be born, a new king of the Jews, and he was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be the savior of the world. And so when they saw this star, hope entered in. And all of a sudden, for the first time, they began to, to, to think, maybe this is something better. Maybe this is something different. Maybe this is something we can cling to. Maybe this is what we've been looking for. And so they did really the unthinkable. They turned their backs on their empire. They turned their backs on their king that they were serving. They turned their backs on the ruling class of Persia, and they set out in hopes of something new. They left their positions of power. They left their positions of privilege. They kind of cashed it all in. They gave up their wealth. They, they loaded it all up. They took the fine treasures that we're going to read about in a minute, and they, they packed it all up, and they traveled across the known world in search of this new king, right? They, they decided, hey, I'm done with this way of living. And for us, like this is interesting, but I think at the same time, it can be a little hard for us to connect to because I don't know about you, but like, I'm not one of the president's guys. Like I, maybe of great comfort to you, like the president has never called me looking for advice, right? So like, I have no idea what that must feel like to be one of these people. But for them, what I think we can connect to what I think we can relate to is even though they were pretty elite in their day and age, they were also just searchers. They were seekers. They were a bit of outsiders. They were kind of foreigners because they had become dissatisfied with the status quo. They had become frustrated with the way things are and the way things you know, have to be. They had been uh, uh, di- you know, disenfranchised with Sunday school answers that don't really answer the questions that they're asking. And they, they decided that there has to be more. There has to be a better life. There has to be something bigger than just serving at the, the courts of these, of these tyrants and these kings. And so at great cost to them, they just cashed it all in at great cost financially, you know, socially, politically, economically. They, they collected their treasures and they set out for Jerusalem. Now, the reason they set out for Jerusalem is because Jerusalem was where kings lived. Jerusalem was where a king lived, the king of the Jews, Herod, the great lived in Jerusalem. Now, Herod was already reigning over the Jews. Now, he was a a puppet king. I mean, he served at the the pleasure of Caesar, but he was a king. So you can imagine when these guys show up and they start asking, hey, where's the new king? It would be like somebody showing up in in our church right now or somebody standing up in in our community this afternoon and saying, hey, where's the new president of the United States? we'd all be a little bit unnerved and the current president would be a little unnerved. Well, as you can imagine, Matthew tells us that King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everybody in Jerusalem, as they should have been. This was unnerving. So Herod did what probably most great leaders would do. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So Herod called his crew. He called his boys together. He said, hey, I got to know. I don't understand what's happening. Help me understand where is this Messiah? Where is this, quote, new king supposed to be born? Because I got to get rid of this child. We can't let this happen. Well, his counsel says in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote about. 
So once Herod had the information, Herod then calls for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star had first appeared. So once he knew what he needed, he found these people, however many they were, he called them into his palace, and he said, hey, tell me what you know, I'll tell you what I know, let's see if we can figure this out together. And once they had their meeting, he told them, hey, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to search carefully for the child. And when you find him, I want you to come back to me, and I want to be able to go and worship this child too. Well, after their interview, the wise men went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east continued to guide them, and it guided them all the way to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and eventually it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with great joy. They entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother. And I love this part. And they bowed down, and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasure chest, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, of myrrh. I love that Matthew tells us very little about their meeting or their interview with the current king of the Jews, with Herod. Like, it just seems like it just kind of happened. It was pretty transactional. We don't know a whole lot about it. But when they encountered the new king of the Jews, when they encountered Jesus, he says they bowed down. They humbled themselves. They worshiped a child that was still needing its mother as they would worship a God. They, they, they praised a baby as they would praise a king. And then Matthew says, when it was time for them to leave, and we don't really know how long they stayed. It could have been moments, hours, days. We really don't know. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. I know that's a simple verse, but I want us to camp out here for a little bit because this has become one of my favorite verses. It's a a verse I return to every Christmas, and I think about, and I kind of lay this verse over my life, and I ask myself, some big questions. I want to read this to you again, because I think it's so important. It says, when it was time to leave, like, so after this experience with Jesus, they returned to their own country, but this time by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. This is why that particular verse is such a a big deal to me. And I, I understand that just like at surface level, basically what's happening here is they have understood that for their own personal safety, for the safety of this child, that they can't go back to Herod's palace. They've, they've figured out Herod's plan. And so I get it, like on the surface level, this is just about physical safety, not only for them, but for Jesus. But I just love this idea. I love this idea that they went home a different route. I think this is one of those great lines of scripture that should always get us thinking. Like they went home a different route. Just like imagine with me, if you would, like think about the route you're on. Think about the route or the direction that your life is taking. Think about your intentions and your decisions and the choices you're making and and then lay over it an experience with Jesus. And like, just start to ask yourself like, hey, what would look different? Like what would start to change? What would need to change about my direction, about my intentions, about the the route I'm taking? Uh, Again, I know I'm just imagining here, but like just think about these wise men for a second. Think about these magi. I mean, after a transformative experience that, that literally had to be the journey of a lifetime, for them. I mean, they sold everything, they cashed it all in, and they gave the gifts away. They, they, they traveled across the known world to, to, to have their lives intersect with this new king. And it was all just a hope and a dream. They didn't have really any facts. They were just really hoping for something better. I mean, this was the journey of a lifetime for them. This was the experience of a lifetime. After that kind of experience, what do you, what do you think it was like for them when they got back home? 
Like how different do you think their life must have been? I know they not only went home a different route, but I just imagine they were different when they got back home. I mean, this last two years for us has been quite a journey, right? Like we've all been on really the journey of a lifetime navigating life within a pandemic and trying to figure out what faith looks like in the midst of just social and political upheaval and what it all means for us and how it all intersects together. And as a result, so many people are are deconstructing right now. You've probably heard that phrase. People are deconstructing their faith and they're taking their faith and they're setting it all on the table and they're saying, hey, what what belongs, what should stay, what, what shouldn't stay, like what fits in this journey that I'm on, what's helpful, what's not helpful, what's real as, as scripture outlines it, what's not real, what's made up, what's man-made. Like I, I get all that and I think some of that is so, so healthy for us. But like we think we're on a journey. Like we think we're deconstructing some things. I mean, try being a, a magi for a second. Just, just try to imagine for a second. They, they probably in the course of just a few hours or an afternoon or whatever this experience with Jesus, however long it lasted, like they probably deconstructed everything about their lives, not just their, not just their faith. I mean, they, before they left Persia, these, these people had everything invested in the known world. They, they had everything invested in their systems and their structures and their politics. I mean, they were serving at the pleasure of, of kings and, and powerful people. They had everything to lose and nothing to gain on this journey. And yet, with a very real experience with Jesus, everything changed for them. Their direction changed. Their life changed. I, I imagine Herod would have lined their pockets with so much money if they just would have come back to him with the information they needed. But no, they traded greed for grace. They they, they traded war for peace. They traded revenge for forgiveness. They ultimately traded the strength of an empire, their empire, Herod's empire. They traded it for the vulnerability of a child. This encounter with Jesus cost them so much more than just gold or, or frankincense or myrrh. It cost them their identities. It cost them their futures. Everything about them, everything around them changed for them. Uh, You've been on trips before where you experienced something so beautiful, so amazing that when you you come back home, life at home almost has like a, a hue of gray to it. It just doesn't seem as vivid or as high def as it once did. Like you've, you've traveled the world and you've, you've met people or you've traveled across the street and you've met people who see the world differently than you. And you learn their customs and you learn their understandings and you learn how they see the world. And all of a sudden it makes the way you see the world feel different, right? Like that's how life was for them. I imagine them riding back to Persia and now their gods are strange, like their, their customs are foreign. Their, their friends and their family, they have problems that seem so insignificant and so small because we just experienced Jesus. We just met the one who changes everything and he changed us. And after one encounter, I just imagine that they no longer fit nice and neatly into the country that they used to rule, into the country that they used to govern because they had an experience that showed them there could be a different world It showed them there could be a better world. It showed them not only could they be different, not only could they be better, not only could they be made new, but the whole world could be made new. I have to imagine it's this thought that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote a letter to this early New Testament church, a church at Corinth. You see, Paul was the, the, one of the biggest opponents of Christianity. 
He hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. He tried to stamp them out and kill them and destroy them. And then he had a similar experience with Jesus. Just a a moment, just an encounter. And it left him different. It left him changed. And he went from persecuting Christians to, to becoming them and starting churches all over the Middle East. And to one of those churches, Paul looked years after this event happened and he said, hey, anyone who belongs to Christ, like anyone who's experienced Jesus, anyone who knows and follows the Messiah has become a new person. The old life is completely gone and a new life has begun for them. The Magi on this day, they they, they met the most radical thing. They met the most radical person that had ever happened in the history of mankind. They met God becoming human, not as an act of revenge, not as a declaration of war, not as a form of aggression, but they met God becoming human as an act or a gift of love. They experienced God revealing himself as a baby to show us that he came to be close to us, to show us that he came to be near to us, to show you that he had not come to get back at you. This is what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. He didn't come to get back at you. He came to get back to you. He wants you to belong to him. He wants to be near to you, and he wants you to be near to him. I love the way author and pastor Tim Keller writes this when thinking about this very idea. He says, the God of the universe became a wiggling baby. Anybody who's ever held a child knows what that's like, the fear of this innocent life squirming and wiggling in your hands. You you feel so afraid for the life of this child. He says, the God of the universe became a wiggling baby, in order to get close to you. He says, God's not found in putting walls up. He's found in putting your defenses down. And that's exactly what the Magi did. They humbled themselves. They put their defenses down. They bowed down. They submitted their lives to this king, to this baby, and they were forever changed because of it. So much so that at great social upheaval, at the cost of great social upheaval, I mean, this was, this was political suicide for them. Like fortunes were going to change. The known world was going to change. Things were going to be different. They had been sent on a mission to find this king. And in the middle of the night, they decided to change allegiances. So much so, their world had changed. Their life had changed that they decided to go back home a completely different way at cost of their relationship with this king. King Herod. Well, you can imagine when Herod found out what had happened, Matthew says that Herod was furious when he realized that the men had outwitted him. And this idea that Herod was furious is such an understatement about how mad he really was. As we began to look at last week, Matthew adds this detail that is so gruesome and so grotesque. I almost wish it wasn't in the text. It's hard to imagine that this is associated with Christmas, but Herod was so furious that he sent soldiers into the streets, into the towns all around Bethlehem to kill every boy in and around Bethlehem who was two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. And we read that and it's, it's words on a page or you hear it as words coming out of my mouth and we can't hardly imagine it because we just don't really come up next to that kind of grotesque, gruesome behavior. But at, at Christmas... This king mercilessly pulls innocent children out into the streets, rips them from the arms of their mothers, 
their fathers, takes brothers away from their sisters and their brothers and their siblings. And without mercy and without compassion, he wipes out a generation of young boys, all to prop up his future, all to prop up his empire, all to maintain the strength of a weak, weak king. Yes, Christmas is the story of the birth of Jesus. That is what we celebrate. And and Christmas is the realization that forgiveness and love and kindness are all available to us. But please don't lose sight this year. I think it will actually help us celebrate better and celebrate correctly. Don't lose sight this year that Christmas is so much more than just the birth of a child. Christmas is ultimately the story of two kingdoms and two kings colliding together, intersecting together. It's such a volatile and hostile and gruesome and grotesque way that we can't possibly imagine. It's the story of two kings and two kingdoms that are diametrically opposed, that cannot coexist, that are fighting over you and me. And basically every Christmas, God is asking you and God is ultimately asking me, hey, which king do you want to follow? Which king do you want to serve? Who do you want to be your king? And the reality is that the the narrative unfolds in such gross and gruesome and grotesque ways that it really shouldn't be a difficult decision. I mean, the the, the choice is, do you want a madman or do you want a messiah? The the choice is, do you want somebody who would massacre uh, children or do you want somebody who would come to you as a child? Do you want somebody who would kill a generation or do you want somebody who would be the savior of all generations and lay their life down so that you and I can have life. But we're all old enough now to understand that just because a decision shouldn't be difficult doesn't mean that the decision is, is easy, right? Like it, every decision isn't easy. And this decision, when you look at it, when you ask yourself the question, like, am I celebrating that Jesus is my king? The reason it's not easy is because we bump up to the understanding that if he's my king, I'm going to have to follow If he's my king, this is so much bigger than just forgiveness. If he's my king, he's probably going to expect some things from me, and my life is going to have to change. My life is going to have to look different. Following Jesus may mean, like the wise men, I have to go home another route. I may have to stare into this new year, and I may have to decide, am I going to change some things? Am I going to allow this king to change some things? Am I willing to continue walking in the same direction that I've been walking in or do some things need to change? And ultimately, the the Magi came to the place where they were fed up of serving in the courts of madmen and king and tyrants. And so they did the unthinkable at that day and age. They staked their futures. They, They staked their lives. Think about it. They staked the known world. They staked our futures on the chance that this baby born in the middle of nowhere, born on the outskirts of a majestic city, born to no-name parents in the middle of a no-name town, that this baby could actually deliver on the promise, that this baby could flip the entire world upside down. And I don't know about you, I have no idea what I would do if I was put in that situation. I can't imagine what they were going through. I mean, this had international crisis written all over it. This was going to blow up the world if they decided to do things differently. I don't know. I mean, I I asked myself, I'm like, why would they do that? Like, why would they take that risk? That just seems like too big of a risk. Like they jeopardized everything. The story could have ended with them. 
ultimately, the only answer I can come up with is that I think in that moment, I think in that experience, whatever happened in those moments they had with Jesus while he was still a child, needing his mother more than ever, is I think for the very first time, they recognized Christmas and they recognized this king for exactly what he was and what was happening. I think they finally understood, yes, that God has not come to get back at you. I think they finally realized that God has come to get back to us and and to you. But I think more than anything, I think they finally, finally, finally got it. That Christmas means, that Jesus means, that God has come to rescue you. That God has come to rescue me. That this whole thing has been a rescue mission. That that Jesus was born to rescue us from the rule of tyrants and madmen and kings and rulers who would do whatever they could to prop up their empire and their kingdoms. That that Christmas represents that God wants to rescue you so much more from from that. Not not only that, not only from the oppression of, of terrible people, but God wants to rescue you from the pain. He wants to rescue you from the pointless, from the mundane, from the dissatisfaction in life. He wants to rescue you from the depression or the anxiety or the guilt or the the fear or the stress or the, the disappointing career, or he wants to save that broken relationship. He wants to rescue you from a world that wants so desperately to break you and to crush you and to destroy you. And the amazing part about this whole story is the realization that not only does he want to rescue you, but that he invites you and he invites me to be a part of the rescue. You see, I imagine as these magi rolled back into town, they didn't stay silent about what they had seen. Their whole world had changed. They couldn't help but talk about it. I imagine that they understood that rescued people rescue people. And so as they rolled back into town and their customs were different and their friends felt different and everything felt strange and all the, the things that they had worked so hard to uphold about their life, I think they realized for the very first time, it's my job. It's my responsibility to make sure everybody knows that they too can be rescued. I love the way Andy said this a couple of weeks ago. Our our team has kind of been chewing on this sentence for a while now. I love how he kind of captured this idea. He he said that uh, people content to be forgiven didn't change the world. The forgivers did. The the faithful did. The, The rescued did. Those who were willing to give up their lives for the good of others did. Those who were willing to shift their allegiance to a new king changed the world. And you know what? I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Herod knew exactly what was at stake here. Herod might not have had all of his Old Testament prophecies in order. He might not have known where this king was going to be born. He might not have known why or, or when or how or all the exact things, even though he had every opportunity to. But Herod knew one thing for certain, that his empire, his kingdom, And the fate of the whole world, as he knew it, hung in the balance of this child. And he was not going to sit by and allow this child to be born. Because he knew. He knew if this news got out. He knew if people understood that they could be rescued, that God was coming to change things, that God was coming for them because he loved them, and that ultimately they would have the opportunity to share this news. He knew that people would not sit back and be indifferent. He knew that people would not sit back and be quiet about it. And I think that is one of the main themes of the entire Christmas story, is that you and I don't get the the luxury at Christmas of just choosing not to choose. We don't get the luxury of just paying attention to nativity scenes or singing a few songs or enjoying some candles or or carols and just saying, I'm going to be indifferent to what we're actually celebrating. 
Because once you've been rescued, you can't help but want to rescue other people. You can't help but want to invite other people to experience the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the love and the kindness that you have experienced. And because ultimately, we come face to face with the reality at Christmas that throughout the generations, there's always two kings. There's always two kingdoms, and they are diametrically opposed to one another, and they're always at war, and they're at war over you, and they're at war over me, and it may not be a literal king anymore, and it may not be a literal kingdom, but there is something out there that is pulling for your attention. There is something out there that is trying to pull you in a different direction, and I feel like Jesus is constantly saying, I was born so that you could go a different way. I was born so you could live differently. I was born so you could go home a better route. I was born so that not only could you experience this, but everybody in the known world would have the opportunity to really celebrate Christmas for what it is. Finally, a king and finally a kingdom. It's not interested in propping up its own wealth or its own standards or its own agenda, but finally a king, finally a kingdom who would lay himself down for you and for me to rescue you from a world that wants so bad to break you. So as we get ready to wrap up and as we get ready to to fully turn our attention towards Christmas and as a group of people, as we get ready to come together to celebrate Christmas Eve one last time, or maybe you're going to be traveling, you're going to be with family, and you know, you're looking at a week where you're, you're, you're finally got a little bit more freedom and your, your schedule slows down, whatever that is, as we turn our eyes towards Christmas. I've asked the band to come back up, and I want us to sing one more song together. And I know sometimes we, we the, bring the band out here and we'll just sing over you. Today, I want us to all sing together. And we're going to sing a, a song that we introduced to you a couple of weeks ago. The the name of the song is How Great Is Your Love. And the reason I want us to sing this song together and the reason we've been teaching you this song for the last couple of weeks is because I, I think it perfectly punctuates this idea that at Christmas, a totally new king entered the world, not just to rule and to reign, but to rescue you. Not just to forgive you, but to say, come on, follow me. Follow me and I will give you a life unlike any life you have ever seen. As we sing, I want you to pay attention to this line. You'll hear it a couple of times. It says, from the heights of heaven, you step down to earth. That's, that's Christmas. Innocent perfection. That's the baby we've been talking about. You gave your life for us. It's easy to think about Easter when we think about that, but ultimately God leaving heaven as Jesus was him going ahead and sacrificing his life. He knew what he was giving his life for in that moment. Innocent perfection, you gave your life for us. We are amazed. We stand in awe for we have been changed by the power of the cross. In your kindness, you lead me home and your presence is where I belong. You called me out. You lifted me up. How great is your love. Let's pray together. Father, 
This idea that your love is great, is, it's so big. It really is so vast and so great that we could never fully get our minds around it. So today as we sing or as something I've said or something somebody is going to experience this afternoon or they're interacting with friends or family, would you give us just a glimpse the vastness, the greatness of your love? Would you help us at Christmas to understand the gift that you have given us. We, we got to experience the greatest gift known to man, you becoming one of us, not as an act of war, not as an act of aggression, but as an act of love. You sent your son to rescue us. God, I pray as we stand at the brink of yet another Christmas, as all of this is about to pass us by and we'll start packing up the decorations, we'll start packing it all back up in the next couple of weeks, I I pray that this week we don't miss that. I pray you enable us to slow down enough that we come face to face with that question. Is Jesus my king? And am I celebrating a king who came not just to forgive me, but a king who asked me to follow him? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.